All right, well, if you are just joining us here this morning, uh, we have been working our way through the New Testament book of Colossians. And if you're kind of new to the Bible, Colossians is part of a group of four smaller epistles uh, that Paul wrote, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. They're all right there in a row, and Colossians being the last one. So if you can find any of those books, you can find your way to Colossians. We're in chapter 3 this morning, beginning at verse 1. We're going to go through verse 4. I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we'll unpack it together. Let's read. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These verses say uh, that when Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus was buried and rose again, we were buried and resurrected with him by faith. As Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father, we're there too, hidden with Christ in God. And when Jesus appears in glory, we will also be revealed with Christ in glory at that time. The idea that once a person has put their faith in Jesus for salvation, that they then become completely united with him absolutely saturates these four verses. His death became our death. And he is now our life. His righteousness is our righteousness by faith. We were raised with him. We operate even now in his power and authority. And his future appearing in glory is also a future that you're invited to look forward to as the moment when you also will be revealed in glory. It says there that right now you are hidden with Christ in God. But there is a day when you'll be revealed. That is a very strong statement about God, from God, about who you are in Christ. And by the way, this uh, complete, I'm, I'm struggling to find words to express the fullness of what God is saying here, but this bond that exists between Christ and his church, it's not just that you're invited to associate with Christ and what he did, but it goes in the other direction too. Jesus also identifies with you, his people, the church. In the past, he took your sin onto himself to the same degree that we are today clothed in his righteousness. He associates with us in our sufferings. We've pointed out on other Sundays in the past that when Jesus appeared to Paul, Saul, actually, on the Damascus Road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was, in fact, doing it to Christians. But Jesus says, no, you're doing that to me. We see there, the, this again, this complete unity, this identification that Jesus has with his church. Even to the degree we're in Matthew 25, where it's talking about the second coming of Jesus, Jesus will say, assuredly, whatever you did unto the least of one of these, my brothers, you did unto me. This goes in both directions. 
Just as it says that our life is hidden with Christ in God, it's also true that the Bible says that God lives hidden within you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God put on flesh, and now we who are his people put on the Spirit. Jesus represents us at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and his church represents Jesus in the world. One of the things we have to say in response to these amazing truths that we see in the first four verses of chapter 3 in Colossians is we have to dispense with the silly, that is a word that I chose carefully, (laughs) an intellectually unserious notion that we sometimes hear people espouse that we can have Jesus without his church or the church without Jesus. You cannot separate the two. Our life is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our righteousness is Jesus. And Jesus said, before going to the cross, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. (laughs) You can't have one and not have the other. You can't separate these two out. And what Paul is laying out for the Colossians here in these first four verses of chapter 3 is the incredible, remarkable degree to which they have been united to God himself through Jesus. In these verses, Paul also summarizes a believer's experience in Jesus in terms of the past present, and future. It's interesting to me as he works his way through these four verses that he basically approaches it that way. Regarding the past, Paul looks back to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And baptism, you know, when we, when we do the baptism up here and love baptisms, baptism, the last time we did, we explained that baptism is a graphic representation of that truth that we find in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what what Paul is doing is he's causing us, the church, to look back. Look back with hope, and confidence upon what Jesus had done for us in the past, what he accomplished for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, says Paul in Romans 6. And then he transitions into talking about the believer's experience in Christ in the present. That's past. That's what Jesus accomplished for us in the past. But in the present, with regards to the present, Paul points us to the fact that right now, at this very moment, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and our life is hidden with him in God. And in this present time, Paul exhorts us to seek things that are above, and to set our minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. This reminds me of something that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, present tense, in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then regarding our future, Paul brings things back around, looked at the past work of Jesus, its present implications for us, and now looking ahead to the future, Paul points us to the day when Christ appears in glory. And in that day, all those who put their trust in him for salvation will no longer be hidden with him, but will be revealed with him in glory. Now, when Paul originally wrote this letter, uh, he was addressing people, and we've talked about this on previous studies in the book of Colossians, who were just learning to walk with Christ. Um, Unlike our church, we have this incredible diversity of people here. Some of us are brand new to Jesus. Some of us grew up in a, a home where Um, the truth of the gospel was proclaimed, but we walked away from it and have only now come back to it to embrace it personally. Others of us have been walking with Jesus faithfully since before I was born. And here we've got this whole mix here in our church, great levels of maturity in Christ and newness in Christ, and we all find ourselves on the road together, benefiting from one another, bringing our own diverse gifts and talents. Paul is writing to a church where every single last one of them came to know Christ within the past couple years and didn't grow up even with the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament to shape them. Many of them came out of worshiping Zeus or Hermes or (laughs) whoever, the pantheon of gods in the Greco-Roman world. This is all brand spanking new. And so Paul in Colossians is laying out a very clear picture for these people of who Jesus is because he wants them to walk in the knowledge of that in the here and now. And they're growing in their understanding of what Jesus had accomplished for them in the past, and they're growing also in their awareness of all the future-looking promises that belong to them in Christ. But there remained this matter of what difference does the knowledge of these things make today? What what difference does it make today what Jesus did for us back then or what Jesus is going to do in the future? And Paul, right here in the middle of this, is really, this is the heart of what he's saying, is what difference does that make today? I have at my house a big honking box. It's a big, sturdy, wooden box, and it is just chocked as much as you can pack in there with letters, and it's the, um, the letters that Sarah wrote to me when we were dating long distance. Many of you here in this room, I've talked to you, many of you have had long distance times in your marriage. Some of you had one or the other was in the service or for whatever reason. Uh, it's a tough thing. And Sarah and I, a large portion of our dating history, I was in back on the East Coast. She was living in California. And... We didn't have cell phones or even emails back then, if you can believe it, how quickly the world has changed. So we would write letters, and they'd actually give them to a human being who would put it in the saddlebag of his horse and (laughs) ride across the prairie and deliver it. Arrow holes through his hat and all kinds of stuff. No, that's not exactly how it worked. But we would write literal letters. And I was, in those days... Guys, I was so starved for Sarah. I just wanted, I'd I'd go down, I remember going down to my college post office box and I'd open it up, and if there was a letter in there from Sarah, 
I would scurry off like a squirrel with a nut. <laughs> and, I, and I would read it and reread it and read between the lines. I would devour that thing. But I had within me the memory of the time we had had together when we were falling in love and our first date and all the dates that came, all the conversations when we were face to face. And I had a hoped-for vision of a future with Sarah in the future, but I'm living in these days between. Now, what difference did that make? The knowledge of my past and the knowledge of my hoped-for vision of the future. Well, it powerfully changed my present. I was going to a school where the ratio of guys to girls was three to one. They didn't even call it dating. We just called it working the ratio because <laughs> it was ridiculously in my favor. <laughs> and guys, I just, it really did. I, I set my mind on Sarah, not on the other ladies who were present. And the knowledge of the past I had with her and the knowledge of the hoped-for future that she also had articulated to me powerfully changed how I lived in the present. Now, that's a very imperfect analogy, very, very deeply flawed. And I think if we spent too much time studying it, we would see all the many ways that that diverges from what Paul is talking about here. But at its center, there is a core truth there that I think is much the same, which is that we are living today in between two great, wonderful events, the coming of Christ into the world and the first time and his return. And here we are living in the middle between those two events, I hope much closer <laughs> to the second coming than to the first. What difference does it make? That's the question. The Christian life in these days is always marked by looking back and looking forward. I think it would be fair to say, based on what Paul is saying here and in other passages, that the incentive and power to living a Christian life pleasing to God comes from two directions. We look back with gratitude, with an amazing and growing awareness of what Christ accomplished for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And beyond that, the weight of all of his teaching during the days of his earthly ministries. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We look back upon the life, the ministry, the words of Jesus, his faithful example, and it powerfully informs the way we live. And we look forward with hope to the glory of God that will appear at the second coming when he appears in glory. And for all those who humble themselves in this life, that will be a day when you are exalted as well. 1 Peter 2.6 invites us to think of it just exactly that way. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So we look back to Jesus, who self-sacrificing love for others, the laying down of his life for others, his obedience and commitment to the truth powerfully informs how we strive to live. But we also remember that after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again, 
He appeared to his disciples, and then, his, and then he ascended into heaven. And as his disciples watched as he ascended, after he disappeared from sight, two angels appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus, who has taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So again, I come back to this question. What difference does it make? Well, in 1 Peter 5, 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think one of the best scriptures I can point to, I've got another one I want to close with, that points to the difference it makes here and now to have the memory of what Jesus accomplished and the promised future with Jesus pressing in upon our mind in this wonderful divine pincer movement (laughs) is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. There are just a handful of scriptures, and I'm different from you. We're all different from one another. I'm sure if we talked, there'd be scriptures that have the same place in your own inner world and thinking. But this particular portion of scripture is one I revisit an awful lot in my mind just driving in the car or in life. In Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, Paul is writing, I'm sorry, not Paul, we, probably Paul, I should say that. <laughs> the author of Hebrews is a mystery. We don't actually know. But he writes this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The line that grabs my attention, there's a lot of powerful things in that. For the amount of time I think about this passage of Scripture, I've never taught on it once in my years as a pastor. That's strange. And here I'm just free associating in front of all of you. (laughs) But the, the line that grabs my attention in this passage of Scripture is where it says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Businesses were seized. And their response was a joyful one. They were persecuted, thrown in prison, And their response was a joyous one. Why? Because they knew they had a better and an abiding possession. In other words, there's something higher and more excellent and longer lasting than the joys and pleasures that they were chasing here, now. We see here the difference it makes when you set your minds on things that are above, not things on the earth. 
If your mind is set on the things of the earth, this is as good as it gets. Grab what you can. Grab what you can, because this is it. This is the summit of your joy. But if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, this is as bad as it ever gets. And all the good stuff is yet to come. There is a better and an abiding possession. I remember once getting on an elevator, and it was too full. I, did, I mean, I could have fit in there, but I didn't want to be that close to other human beings. <laughs> so I just let them go. I said, you go ahead, and I'll take the next one. And as Christians, I think we need to be able to say, you can have this life. I'm taking the next. I'm not emotionally invested in the, my heart. This is a terrible place to invest your heart, guys. Terrible place. This is a place where must, uh, uh, sorry, moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You're going to leave it or it's going to leave you. Paul says to the Colossians, don't make that fatal error of setting your mind here, now. What difference does it make? <laughs> it's a, it makes a powerful difference. The holding of, two thing, of these two things, though, need to be held in balance. The knowledge of Christ's past, his example, his death, his burial, his resurrection, these things powerfully inform how we live as Christians. And the knowledge of his future coming and glory, we need to hold these two things together. And for an example of what it looks like to hold these two things in a lopsided way, we need to look no further than the Pharisees in the Bible. If you're brand new to Christianity, that probably doesn't mean much to you, but the Pharisees are in the New Testament kind of like the arch nemesis for Jesus. Every time you look around, Jesus is having some kind of public confrontation with the Pharisees. They're highly legalistic gatekeepers for the religious practices before Jesus came along. And so they are um, really at odds with Jesus and his teachings quite often. But the Pharisees, guys, believed, and it was a cornerstone of their lives, that God would one day judge the world in righteousness. <laughs> they believed in a coming day. They really did. But they had no knowledge or appreciation for what had come before in Jesus. They looked forward to a day of judgment, but had not any knowledge of the grace of God that appeared in Jesus. And so they're very lopsided in the way that they view people. It's also dangerous to have a belief, an understanding of who Jesus was, but to have no particular regard for the truth that he's coming back. Uh, it says in First um, Peter that in the last days there will come scoffers who say, where is the promise of his appearing? Matthew 24, we read about this. Therefore, this is a parable Jesus spoke. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Maybe today, really and truly. 
Uh, This could be the last occasion where you ever hear the gospel proclaimed. This could be it. He is coming back. And the biblical exhortation is to be ready. So, yeah, in light of these things, Paul says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I believe that what he means by things that are above are precisely the truths that surround the statement that Jesus came into the world. For God so loved the world that Jesus came and he died. He lived a perfect life and he gave us many wonderful teachings and he was resurrected. Yeah, set your minds on Jesus' example. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, says in Hebrews. That's very, looking to Jesus is very much the spirit of set your minds on things that are above. And it also means, of course, the truth, the hope of his coming in glory. And things that are on the earth... Are any ideas or behaviors or institutions in this world that are not rooted in and shaped by the truth of Jesus and the gospel? The word that Paul uses in verse 2 where it says, set your mind on, is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2 when he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this means something more than simply setting your mind to a task. Uh, I think very often we as human beings, we set our minds on things that we dislike. We set our minds on things, frankly, that we even disagree with. Uh, I have many times set my mind to doing something um, because I had no choice, it felt like. So when Paul here says, set your mind on the things that are above, let's bring some precision to that. What is he actually talking about? The word being used here speaks more to adopting nothing short of an overhaul of your inner world, the way you think, your emotional life, your patterns of attitudes and responses, the relationships you pursue and those you don't, what jobs do you take and how you spend your days off, that these things would be formed by the realities that are above the realities of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross in the rearview mirror and the spectacular public appearance of Christ looking forward. You see, I think what he's confronting here, if there's a confrontation at all, it doesn't sound to me like Paul is confronting, really. But I think that what I felt, I'll put it this way, what I felt confronted about is not that the day-to-day of my life is necessarily ungodly, but that so much of it is godless, I guess. And he's not really at the center of the whole thing. Uh, There's so many, the, the constant, have you ever had a shopping cart that had a wonky wheel and it just was constantly trying to drift to one side or another? And the only way you could keep it going straight was to the corrective of muscle, (laughs) You just had to keep shoving on one side more than the other to keep it going straight. You are a shopping cart with a wonky wheel, and you, the natural tendency of human beings is to drift 
into a place where the things of the earth are central to our existence. Wood rots, metal rusts, stones corrode, and you drift. You drift. And one of the things Paul is saying to the Colossians here is a necessary corrective. You've received the amazing knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did for you. You've received promises of his coming again. And now, to prevent drift away from those things, set your mind on things that are above. Make those things central to how you live in the day-to-day of your life. I was uh, listening to somebody who served in the... um, No, that's wrong. Never mind. Again, I'm free associating right here in front of you. The people on the radio love when I do this. They're just like, what's going on? Uh, I think it was on the show The Crown. There was like a butler in the service of the queen, I think it was, and he said that the rot begins in the small things. That's so true. It's in the small things, the small little everyday practices where the drift begins. I, I think the church personally is full of people who would die for Christ, but who struggle to live for him today. If right now somebody came up to you with a gun and said, deny Christ, you'd say, no, I'll die before I do that. But we'll go out from here and not live like he matters at all. We won't crack the Bible. We won't be disciplined in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. We believe in him. But then we live like it doesn't matter today. Maybe hypothetically it would someday. Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above. Make this thing central. Let your way of seeing the world, thinking about the world, feeling about the world be shaped by Christ as he's revealed in the gospel, and a future, a promised day when he will appear in glory. Live for these things. I'll close with this observation. I've made the point earlier that the first time I decided I wanted to preach through Colossians was last year during our study through the book of Philemon, which is a companion letter to Colossians. Philemon and Colossians were delivered to that church at the same time by the same hands. And Philemon, as I won't revisit our whole study through Philemon, Um, But what we saw there was an amazing example of what the knowledge of the past work of Jesus and the future promised reward is, the effect it has on these two men, Philemon and Onesimus. Right? Because... Paul there doesn't make it, is not arguing with Philemon for the gospel. He's arguing for Philemon to behave in a certain way in light of the gospel. And he's making his case to these two men that it should really make a difference the way you relate to one another and the choices you make in light of Jesus' example in the past and his promised coming in the future. Because a person who has truly grasped what it is to be set free from their own slavery to sin and death will look upon a slave differently. A person who has grasped their neediness before God will look on their needy neighbor differently. And the person who believes in a coming day of judgment 
will love justice now. Paul hinges his argument to Philemon and Onesimus on the truth of who Jesus showed himself to be in the gospel and on the coming day when you are going to stand and give an account. And it makes a profound difference in Philemon and Onesimus, and we studied that at great length. Uh, So I will not revisit it here now this morning. But that's it. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? That's always the question when we come to the end of our times together, isn't it? What are you going to do about it this week? I think there are many things that we could possibly do. Um, One is, I think that as I took stock of my own heart this week, as I'm writing these words down that I'm going to share with you, I'm constantly confronted by the fact that there is drift in me. There's drift, always drift. We're always tending like a wonky shopping cart to do that. How how am I going to move proactively to address that in my own life this week? How can I advise you to do the same? And one of the things we come back to so often it sounds tired is God's Word. Uh, You cannot set your mind on things that are above without giving God's Word access to our, our inner worlds. And error tends to flourish like weeds. You've got to take the hoe of the Bible and chop them up, get those paths clear. Uh, recommit this week to being disciplined in your pursuit of God in His Word. Set your mind on things that are above by getting in this book. Give it access to the truth of your inner world. Spend time with Him there. Make time for it. Commit to it. Also, guys, it's small group season, and next week my plan is to have um, an offering of small groups to sign up for in the back. Um, We're working hard to try and put some together for folks. Uh, We have a lot of great small groups that have been running for some time, and they're just kind of at a size where it's hard to plug more people into them. So we're trying to create more groups so that more people can be involved. I really believe this is so critically important that God's people would find themselves in a smaller group of believers where they are known and where they know others and where um, they can be encouraged towards these things. And so I'd really um, ask you to prayerfully consider joining a small group. Uh, So those are the two things I would leave for you, but there may be other ways that you might respond to this idea of setting your mind on the things that are above. Sometimes I think it just begins with a simple prayer to God that acknowledges the level of drift (laughs) Uh, that, God, I am so far out of position, and I'm crying out to you, I need your help. Um, uh, help bring me back. I heard a pastor speak one time, and uh, he was, I think I may have told this story to you, but he, his kids would go out swimming in the ocean, and there was a, um, a current that ran along the shore there, and the kids just frolicking in the waves would find themselves 40, 50 yards down the beach from where their parents were, and they'd have to go down and say, come back, come back, come back, all day long, come back, come back, come back. And this is, I think, God in, in this passage, this is one of those moments where God comes down to the water line and he calls out to us, set your mind on things that are above, come back. God is constantly calling out to us from his word to come back, come back, come back. You're drifting, you're drifting. And so I um, encourage you to kick, to strive, to fight against that drift this week and going forward. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for calling out to us through this ancient letter. 
to set our minds on things that are above. God, we are living today in the space between. And God, here we're about to take communion together, and there we are going to do this in remembrance of Jesus. And God, that very act of remembrance is a looking back. But God, we don't just look back, we also look forward with hope. And God, like I used to find the letter in my box and just cherish it, uh, Father, our coming to the table this morning has a similar feel. God, we cherish what belongs to us in Christ. We cherish the way that you've spoken to us this morning through your word, and you've opened it up and made it known to our hearts. And God, we ask you, Lord, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God, to help us live what we have seen in there in an enduring way. God, help us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. God, we choose you. And God, we look forward to the better and abiding possession that is ours in Christ, that on the last day when the chief shepherd appears, he brings with him that unfading crown of glory. But God, while we wait for that day, help us to live in light of what we have come to know about Jesus and the gospel. Make us more and more into the image and likeness of the one who gave himself for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.